We were able to build a little bit of a database because remember, as entrepreneurs, you're just starting in the space. We had no database. We relied on partnerships with BDSA, for example, who is our partner in all of this. Um, we relied on partners. We relied on our media associations to help us get the word out about who we were and also to generate leads. But after three of them, really, this is not working. People are maybe registering to attend the virtual event and then they're not showing up. They're not logging in. So rather than continue to spend money on these virtual events, we decided, fuck this, we're not doing that anymore. We are going to focus on our first live event. And we are, had to furlough our staff. Um, we had to take a break ourselves. Like we, And Wendy and Morgan, who are with us, who are an integral part of our team, they went on furlough and they never looked for another job. You know, they stuck with us and they believed in us and they believe in the mission and they stuck with us when we didn't know. I just knew that I didn't want to um, spend energy on virtual events anymore. I wanted to focus on how we can make our first in-person events successful and but they stayed. Welcome to Lit Up Founders, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. Warning, this episode is intense. Sorry in advance for the pun. Being an entrepreneur is tough. Start that same business in cannabis and it's at least 10x more difficult. What about starting a business with your spouse as a co-founder and business partner? Maybe try to start an in-person events company a month before a global pandemic. Yeah, George and Kim Jage have done all that, still love each other. And after two events in Las Vegas and New York, they're onto something disruptive and are returning to Las Vegas this September. Kim is the energetically connected to the universe type, someone who would choose a college major to travel and understand the humans of the world better. She loves people, their energy, and sharing their passions. George is the stolen motorcycles, gas station weed, mushroom walks with undercover cops kind of guy, who unsurprisingly always got himself into trouble. In doing so, he built a key skill of how to get out of it, and that essential make it work drive that helped him start many successful businesses. Following her passion for plant medicine, their meeting at a tea expo George was running was predicted by Marcus, Kim's naturopathic friend. The connection was immediate. The resulting story is how they came to start a journey as life and business partners, pandemics and all. Please enjoy the founder's journey of starting a disruptor event for cannabis brands and retailers, MJ Unpacked, with co-founders George and Kim Jage. I've been in the trade show space for you know about 30 years. Uh, but back in 2014, and I had an opportunity to come in and uh, take over as the lead executive for a fledgling, a fledgling publication in the space at the time called MMJ Business Daily that had one full-time employee and, you know, really have an opportunity to take a lot of my life experiences and my passion for the plant, um, you know, into the cannabis space. And I mean, you know, what an exciting industry this is. Back then, it was a lot of uncertainty too, a lot of stigma, a lot of question marks of whether or not this would actually get wings and, and take off to where we are today, which, you know, everybody knows the horse has been let out of the barn, ain't coming back in. Um, you know, so, you know, when I was 
when I had the opportunity, I was building MJ BizCon, you know, every, every event in the industry at that time, there was only actually two when I started and there was like 15 the next year. And every single one of them was really kind of focused around a supply side kind of experience where, you know, light bulbs, label makers, extraction equipment, the machine in the corner that goes bing. Um, and Kim's in my experience, you know, building World T Expo and other events that we've been involved in other industries. You know, we know from experience, like, I mean, you know, cannabis is a consumer packaged goods, like, you know, and kind of trying to visualize what does this industry look like as it matures? You know, it is going to behave and be very similar to every other C CPG industry. Um, and you look at alcohol is probably a really good parallel. Um, and the biggest and most important event in that space is the bar and nightclub show. Um, if you look at the natural products, you know, industry, the natural products expo, where it's really, you know, the brands are exhibiting and the retailers are attending, you know, but at that point in time, when I was building MJ biz, like nobody was ready to do a brand show. There wasn't really that many brands out. Um, and everybody was trying to figure out what does this legal industry look like? I need, I needed the light bulbs. I need the display cases. I needed packaging, and all of those kind of supplies to really stand up these licenses. Um, but, you know, it was always something that when I go to bed at night and close my eyes, I'm like, how do we ever get that to pivot to being a CPD style show? Um, and, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, um, I had a departure from MJ Biz and um, took, a, took an opportunity to step into some consumer media space in the cannabis space. That was an interesting life lesson and, and journey. Um, and then, you know, when that kind of came full circle and I had an opportunity and Kim and I had, you know, talked about this um, and uh, we decided that it was the right time to launch a CPG style show for the industry. And the main reason that one doesn't exist is because we don't have a national CPG market yet, but we're going to and we're getting closer to that. And mm -hmm. we can, you know, pontificate till the cows come home, so to speak. Sorry for all the farm references, but, um, you know, uh, of when that happens. But, um, you know, I'm hoping that it's going to happen sooner than later. And I think when it does happen, it's going to happen quick and it'll be a mess uh, if we have any, a track record in the cannabis industry for that. Um, and hopefully it's not going to be like safe banking that we're still sitting around 10 years later scratching our heads. Why the hell don't we have this? Um, uh, and, we, you know, we, we just we. You know, when you look at the industry and what we Kim and I learned from, you know, World T Expo when I started that uh, that event. You know, I saw that there was this opportunity in the in the industry, but you know, Kim and I quickly learned it wasn't the Liptons and the Tetleys that are going to support this type of event. It's the independent operators, the RCTs, the Ts, et cetera, um, the the true entrepreneurs. That's that's where innovation happens. These are the people who are really passionate about. It. These are the people who get the most benefit of creating some, somewhat of a kind of you know open market type of concept, which a trade show is, and creating an opportunity where. You know, you can have a 10 by 10 booth or you can, you know, be one of those companies that takes a, a you know, 20 by 40 booth at a big show and spends $250,000 building out your booth. You're going to have the same access to the potential to the market at, at either case. And it really comes down to is who are you? What are you doing? What problem are you solving? You know, how good is your product? Right. And in the cannabis industry, especially, I mean, it's such a unique space um, that, you know, there, and and you've got all of these independent operators out there, retailers and brands, and they've gone through hell and back trying to build their businesses. I mean, you know, with all of the challenges, regulatory, um, you know, punitive tax codes, um, theft, uh, inability to get proper insurance, everybody, you know, charging them extra money for banking or rent or everything else because of 
perceived risk with being a cannabis business. And, um, you know, these people deserve a fair shot. Um, you know, we're going to get to federal legalization and there is going to be that tsunami I talk about a lot of big alcohol and tobacco coming in. And it would be a travesty if these independent brands and retailers didn't have an opportunity to compete in a federally legal market and have a chance to create that type of generational wealth for their families, not just, you know, enhancing the wealth of these large, you know, alcohol and tobacco companies. Um, and, and that's who Kim and I are. I mean, that's what we stand for. And that's, you know, what, what we've done. We've been small business people our whole lives and we want to help people. That's where we find our greatest, I think, joy and passion. And why we felt that this was a show that was, the time was right. And it's not a show, it's an event. <laughs> Tell everyone, we are not a trade show, we are an event. And what George is touching on, I think, Brian, is the fact that like tea, well, tea and cannabis were both discovered by the same man, by the way. So we like to say that we're still working for the same guy, Emperor Shenyang, um, founded both. And cannabis is a lot like that specialty tea industry. And when George and I started World Tea, there was only Lipton, Tetley, and Bigelow on the store shelves. Now, today, there's a plethora of tea brands out there. And I like to think that George and I had something to do with that because what we did was we helped build the community and bring all of these passionate people who loved the plant, may not have had business acumen, may not know they opened up their specialty tea store in Princeton, New Jersey, let's say, mm -hmm. but they didn't know anything about retail. We see a lot of the same passion. Uh, people are, you know, creating cannabis brands. Maybe they don't know much about the CPG industry, Right. And we want to help support them. Um, and we saw that similarity in cannabis and we thought this is where we can bring our talent to the table and help people succeed. And there's nothing more fulfilling than when one of your exhibitors who's just starting out, you know, comes up to you and says, thank you so much. Without me being here, I wouldn't have met these investors, or this wouldn't have happened to me. They're ringing the gongs. They're making yeah. those gong moments. But it's even, this was, you know, well, it happened in New York too, but in Vegas, when we launched and we had no idea what, what was going to happen, who was going to show up and how it would all play out. And people didn't realize they should be banging the gong. <laughs> it was just there for decoration. <laughs> I would just get a good hug, you know, and... That works. Even better. This even goes back to, Kim, I mean, you know, when we look back at, at World Tea Expo, and, and that was a challenging business. There's just not the same type of economics in the tea industry as cannabis space. Um, and, you know, we went through some hardships. And, you know, in 2008, when the economy tanked, and we lost 30% of our revenue basically overnight and had to, you know, scramble to, to keep the company afloat. Um, there were days where, you know, if my partner in China didn't randomly, you know, send his payment in three weeks early. I might not, have, we might not have made payroll. Wow. Um, and there's always the rabbits out of the hat. We talk about that, um, you know, it's quite a lot of cards, but I think probably the, the most significant moment that, that I will take away. And I think Kim will too, um, with world T expo is, um, Kim created the world T championship. So it was a global competition that people could send in teas from around the world. And we brought in these, these amazing people that would test tea, like 200 cups of tea a day. It's, it's kind of like a wine process. They're like slurping the tea and spitting it into a bucket. 
Um, they got to eat bananas so their stomachs don't get upset. That's a pro tip right there. Note to self. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, after the first year we ran it, um, you know, there was a bunch of people domestically like, Hey, you can't do this. You know, when these people win these awards they're you know, then, you know, not selling us the lots that they promised us and everything else. So we adjusted so that, you know, people had to have, um, a domestic partner to submit their teeth. So we like, Three months after one of our shows, we get a letter from a friend of ours. He's actually in the cannabis industry now, Charlie Kane, who had submitted a tea from Assam, uh, India. It's a very violent region, a um, lot of poverty. Um, it's you know kind of tucked in the, the northeast corner of India, kind of between China and Bangladesh. Um, and the letter he sent us was from a son from a tea farm. And I get choked up even to this day talking about this, is that the son wrote a letter to Charlie and said that, you know, his father had told them that they were going to have to sell their far farm that had been their family for generations and go take jobs in the factory because they can't make it in the tea industry, primarily because the big conglomerates were going around and, and kind of devastating local economies. If the price went up to $2 for a kilo of tea, they'd go to Sri Lanka and buy something similar for $1.20 just to drive those corporate profits. Um, and the letter from the Sun talked about the fact that they won this competition. They were able to get a price for their tea to, to save their family farm. Wow. And it's nobody Kim and I ever met. And um, but we had that ability to influence somebody's life and that, that we created that moment at their dinner table that they knew that they were going to be able to stay in the industry and do what they love to do. That's impactful. Yeah, that's really impactful beyond beyond money and you know, fame and all those other things that, you know, some people might think that they want. It's like you're helping people succeed and, and, and doing it yourself at the same time. And that's probably the most fulfilling thing at the end of every hard day that you look at and you're like, well, we've made a difference here. We did some good. Yeah, how do we change so, somebody's life and make it better? Yeah. Uh, those values start out rather, rather young in, in any entrepreneur. Um, so like that was an amazing intro and I love the passion behind what you guys do. And I've been to the, the New York show recently and I, I just really had to, especially going to a few shows over the past, well, <laughs> yearish, um, seeing a, a, a very different and specific focus with your show. Um, I really wanted to have you guys on today to, to share your founders journeys and, and how you guys came together as, um, uh, both husband and wife couple, um, and, and and you know that's an extra level uh, entrepreneurship points there. Starting a stressful business and being married at the same time um, to each other, no less. Uh, that's that's fairly amazing. Um, I wanted to you know with every founder that we have on the show, I always want to kick it back, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this. But like, whoever wants to go first, Kim or George, your your decision on this one. But like, I always want to know a little bit about where you guys come from. Like, obviously. Um, where, but also like a little bit about your family, your siblings, and some things that you were like really passionate about when, when you guys were kids. I was an only child. I'm from Jersey. So uh, I always um, felt most comfortable when I was helping somebody else to be, that's just, it was just sort of in my nature, but I didn't want to be a nurse and I didn't want to be a therapist, even though I, all my friends used to come to me and like I was the therapy friend. I've been meditating since I was 12. Um, so I'm, I, I just feel very connected to the universe. And um, yes, I do work with energy. I, would, I don't like the term master. Um, 
And but I wanted to be an actress because I thought that was the way I felt most comfortable on the stage. And I thought telling stories was a way of helping people. I love reading books. I love watching movies. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And it didn't really work out because I wasn't good at being broke. Um, it's, a, it's a hard <laughs> skill. I, I don't know how people do that. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't want to wake up at 6 a.m. You know, my first apartment after I went to school, I went to Hofstra because my parents made me go to college, even though I wanted to be an actress. They said, no, you have to have it. You know, where did international politics come into play then? That only because my junior year, I wanted to go backpacking through Europe. And in order to do so, I had to go into the program. So I went into the program. I like it. So the backpacking was the lead <laughs> into your major. Backpacking. I just wanted to travel. Yeah. How was that trip? Was it a great trip? It was fantastic. And that's when I caught my travel bug. Um, and after my father died, my father died when I was pretty young. I was about 22 years old. And my mother had never left the country. But I, of course, had gone backpacking. This was when the EU was in its early formation. So that's why we went. We went to the 13 countries to check out the EU uh, and what would, you know, at the time it, the EU was going to be more powerful than America and all this other. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. So, um, but after my father died, my mother said she really wanted to travel the world and get outside of the country. And, but she, I was an only child and most of my other family had already passed, unfortunately. Um, and I don't, I didn't have cousins. So I said, my mother said, will you go with me? And I said, sure, I will go with you, but we are not going to normal countries. Like, I don't want to go to France or, you know. This isn't tour bus mode. Right. Mm -hmm. We're going to go somewhere crazy. Um, and that started to tradition with my mother that every year we would go to some weird, or not weird, I shouldn't say weird, but some off the, you know, off the normal path country. Um, and it started a tradition. And now my mother... Yeah. has the bug herself. She She's not going to tell you her age because she would be very mad at me. But she recently went to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, you, you got you to, gotta, I got to interject there. And so when she was there, she does a lot of photojournalism. Um, so that she was photographing the cannibals there. So one of the head chiefs in the village had offered her 30 pig for her hand in marriage. Um, I I was trying to figure out, I mean, like, do we get the pigs? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Is this a dowry? Her, like, how does, what is there a commission like, on yeah, this? Like, <laughs> there wasn't really a lot of details in the uh, offer, but, um, so she did pass it on. I will, I will, I will maybe not update my dating <laughs> profile. Um. <laughs> well, to bring that full circle, it comes back to my passion for people, culture, uh, understanding other people's stories and helping them tell them. I was going to say that. What was that impactful moment from you? That, that those lessons there, besides time with your mom, but like you just—it's a different way of you get to see many different stories and how to interpret them, and also how Correct. to tell them. Wow, that's a, and also have some fun doing it. Not have to change any more, not have to declare any more majors to be able to do it. Just world studies. Thank you very much. World studies. I like and it. and I find people and their cultures and their stories fascinating and enlightening. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's, you know, that's how we, you know, gain compassion and understanding is, you know, through those journeys. Mm -hmm. So how did <clears throat> I want to continue on the on the Kim vein for a little bit longer. So you're traveling around the world, glo global setting with mom, learning new things, turning down generous offers of, of pigs <laughs> for um, her hand in marriage. Um, <laughs> 
Um, how did how did your professional career evolve? I, and I know you guys foreshadowed a bit. You guys met in in T, um, but like, how did that? How did your career kind of evolve as you followed your passions? So, um, well, I don't want to give you like the long life story, but I had been in China. Um, I was smoking cigarettes back in the day, and I quit before I went to China, and I developed this terrible rash, like right, right where my waistband is, you know, in your pants. And I had gone to the, the doctors and I had gotten this steroid shot in the butt to help me get rid of this rash. I had done all these things to get rid of the rash. It wouldn't go away. I'm due to go to China. I go to China. Now, I am very open to acupuncture. I'm very open to Eastern medicine. I always have been. Um, natural medicine, naturopathy. I was always very interested in that. Uh, so I asked my Chinese guide to please bring me to a Chinese doctor and to get acupuncture to help me get rid of this rash. And she said to me, she did. And then she was translating and she told me that the doctor would not treat me because I was Western and because the rash would get worse before it got better. And I probably wouldn't understand that. And as a result, he wasn't going to help me. But he told me to drink white tea with chrysanthemum. So I was never a tea drinker. I was always a black coffee drinker my whole life. I hated tea, actually. So I said, okay, well, I guess I'm going to drink this white tea with chrysanthemum. And I did throughout the remainder of the three weeks I was there. And sure enough, the rash went away. I don't remember at what point during the trip the rash went away, but it went away. So I had decided I had moved out of New York City. It was shortly after 9-11. That's after that I went to China. Um and I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. But when I discovered tea in China, I knew that I had to, to do something with that plant. So when I was leaving Shanghai, I bought a couple suitcases and I packed them with all this tea. And I brought it back to New Jersey. Um, and I decided... A, tea or a, tea, a regular tea meal. How did you get your customs one? <laughs> <laughs> They didn't care. They did a tea. Nobody cared? Nobody cared. Um, okay. <laughs> and I decided I was going to start a tea business. I'm going to pause you for a quick second. What convinced you that the tea was the cure versus just the three weeks and my body just figured itself out? Well, I, I believe that I was detoxing that all that nicotine and all of those toxic chemicals. Um, and then when I start, when I realized that I think there's a correlation between the tea and the rash going away. I, of course, got online and got on the internet and started reading. And I started reading that white tea does have detoxification effects. So this made a, this was a big impact in you. Like you literally bought luggage, <laughs> international trade, bringing things home. <laughs> bringing tea. I have a picture. Here's my, one of my tea experiences in China with, you know, drinking tea, learning about all the different teas because I was convinced that, yes, this tea helped me. Um, okay. and that's when I, so you're, you're home now with all the suitcases full of tea. What, what are we, we going to do? do? So one of my close friends was actually a MD turned naturopath. Uh, and he decided he would help me and he would be my partner in this tea business. And we were going to open a little tea shop in Princeton, New Jersey. So, uh, of course I just, you know, I decided I needed to learn everything I could about tea and there was a tea trade show going on, um, or one had just passed, and that was George's tea trade show. It had just ended, but there was a coffee show. 
the inaugural his one. inaugural one it was that called was- take me to tea oh. horrible name that i later changed um <laughs> but uh there was a coffee show in atlanta georgia and it had a tea symposium to it a specialty tea symposium so marcus my was going to be my business partner said you need to go to that event it was called uh, the specialty coffee what was it scaa yeah specialty coffee association uh their annual expo in atlanta, in atlanta georgia. georgia okay so marcus who's also an energy worker and uh very good at what he does says to me you need to go to this event and you're going to meet the man you're going to marry and I think I was 30 at the time. So I was like, oh, whatever, Marcus. But I went to the event because I wanted to learn more about tea. And that's when I met George. Wow. Wow. We'll pause on that suspenseful. Yeah, I'll, right I'll bring you up to my side of the story <laughs> of where that happened. I, I love a good teaser on that one. George, let's throw it back. Where, where does it all begin for you? <clears throat> oh, man. Um, I feel like I'm on the therapist couch here with you. Um, <laughs> So, you know, when, when I grew up, I grew up in Milwaukee, uh, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I, I think I was pretty much a quintessential Gen Xer. My parents got divorced. Um, you know, my dad, uh, you know, had some business challenges and, you know, parent, you know, parents got divorced and my mom was, you know, kind of, you know, working and kind of latchkey child and, you know, all of a sudden kind of forced back into a work role and finances were, were difficult. And... Um, you know, I was relatively left unsupervised to be raised in the wild, so to speak. Were you an uh, only um, child or did you have uh, I have an older brother. Um, he's, uh, he lives in Topeka, Kansas. Um, and, um, you know, so, you know, I think we both had different, you know, kind of experiences with that. I think as the older child, he was more apt to kind of, you know, try to question what went wrong and, you know, feel a sense of, remorse about that. I was like, fuck this. I'm getting out of the house and go get in some trouble, um, which I did very successfully. And, um, you know, I, um, uh, I think you could probably interview the police department at, uh, oh. where I grew up and looked and asked them, you know, if I was told I couldn't do something that made me want to do it more. Um, and, uh, you know, also as a part of that, you know, I was, you know, 15 years old. I, you know, was working, you know, 30, 40 hours a week at a gas station. Um, I had a stolen motorcycle. I didn't know any better that I bought a stolen motorcycle, but I had a stolen, stolen motorcycle, no driver's license to get myself back and forth to work. And a couple of the guys I worked with were moving a fairly considerable amount of marijuana through the gas station, um, and uh, which was, by the way, directly across the street from the police station. Um, so, um, you know, I had kind of, you know, a... Uh, uh, experimented with with pot i remember the guy bought it from my best friend lyle and i bought a a dime bag it was mostly seeds and stems but we didn't know any better i was just popping you know (laughs) um yeah Uh, you know so so you know i i liked it and and then you know i realized some of my friends liked it and was able to kind of start my herbal distribution business um 
as a supplement to my income. I wasn't ever a really good drug dealer. I really didn't ever make any money doing it. I just made sure all my friends had it and I had some extra. I mean, good, good is good is the defining moment of the beholder, though. Like you had a good social time with it, but maybe not an economically profitable one. So, um, as long as you hopefully didn't get pulled over on your stolen motorcycle (laughs) without a license. And keep in mind, my dad's college roommate was Billy Hayes, which uh, Oliver Stone made the movie Midnight Express about. So. Um, you know, he understood the perils of drug trafficking, um, and, you know, gave me, gave me fair warnings, but did nothing to enforce anything. So, you know, um, again, it gave me an opportunity to kind of be exploratory. Um, as I said, I, I kind of got myself in a lot of trouble when I was a kid, but I, what it did, it did is it taught me to be very resourceful to get out of it. And, you know, having done some personal inventory over the years, I mean, I think that, um, for whatever reason, um, I operate really well in chaos and kind of undefined spaces to kind of find a path out um, because that's kind of what I had to do when I was a kid. I had to find my own way to resolve issues and it's been the life skill. I don't know if it's a great life skill to have, but um, it's, it's an essential life skill for any entrepreneur, especially. Yeah, uh, I think so. You um, walk into this mess and then have to figure out how to build the uh, the airplane while you're falling down a cliff. Yeah. So, um, you know, I left high school and, and, you know, growing up in kind of a affluent community and being the kid from the, I wouldn't say the wrong side of tracks. I mean, listen, we were afforded a very nice life as, as kids and, and didn't have a lot of necessarily wants, but, you know, we also had to work for it. And, um, you know, so I ended up going to a school in, in upstate Wisconsin, you know, really just, uh, kind of on a flyer, um, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Went up there, um, had a great time. You know, now I'm in college, fake ID. I was managing the biggest bar on campus until the owner found out I was only 19. Um, and uh, then I ended up running a kitchen in the back. But uh, once I left school, my dad was, you know, he was in the apparel business. He had, um, you know, struggled a little bit as a, what they call a jobber. Um, so they liquidate excess manufacturers inventories and, you know, resell them. So they kind of live and die by every deal. Um, these, these, you know, some of the hardest core merchants that would, you know, um, sell their mom for a dollar if they knew they could make 10 cent profit. Right. Like they, they literally would, were just aggressive group. Every conversation was a negotiation with this group. So they all exhibited at a trade show. They, they, there's a big trade show in the apparel industry called Magic, which is for the manufacturers in the apparel industry. And all of these jobbers who would basically liquidate their end-of-season goods or buy distressed assets, you know, IRs or stuff stuck in customs and sell it, you know, 30 to 70% below wholesale. This is before TJ Maxx and, okay. and Marshalls and all these big companies were around. They were all small companies and, you know, independent retailers. Um, you know, they all, you know, rented space at the Hilton next door to the convention center and would kind of have their own little show within a show. And and the big apparel show didn't want them there because, you know, again, you know, they don't want to sell space to this guy that's selling Tommy Hilfinger at 70% below what Tommy Hilfinger was taking a huge booth at their show is, right? So, um, you know, I had kind of helped them through, you know, college and bring some buddies down to help unload trucks and sort stuff in the past. Uh, so when I left college, um, I, I had an opportunity to, um, I was going to pursue a, a career in pharmaceutical sales, which at that time in the um, gosh, early, early 90s, if I can date myself. It was booming. Yeah, that was a, a pretty lucrative career. I had a degree in microbiology. 
Um, so I saw you were in the microbiology club as well. So yeah, that was kind of interesting. So um, <laughs> my friend Bill, who would go to class and take the notes, I would go out and party and then cram before the exams. And um, um, we walk into a lab class one day, and a couple of girls come up and say, "Hey, Bill, congratulations!" And he's like, "What?" He goes, "We elected you the president of the microbiology club." And he's like. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm laughing, I'm snickering, and like they look over at me like George, and we elected you co-president. I'm like, okay, um, which was funny. So I taught everybody how to make beer, as my passion around microbiology. And then uh, we had this great teacher, Dr. Leonard Tews. I remember him to this day. He was very influential, and he was a mycology teacher, a study of mushrooms. So we organized a mushroom walk for the microbiology club through the woods uh, near Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, to go and forage and harvest some um, wild mushrooms and for and have the professor come along and teach us about this. And we cooked some up out of the woods. And we're like, holy cow, there's like 25 people that came out for this thing. And then like at the end of the tour, we realized that about a dozen of them were undercover cops from local <laughs> places that had seen all the posters about our mushroom walk and decided to ride along and see what the hell was going on in the woods. Um, so, but you weren't doing um, anything illegal, though. You're outside. No, we weren't. They weren't. Property, but they, look you know, at mushrooms. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, they, um, hopefully, they got they got an education out of it too. Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, and uh, Doctor Two cooked. We cooked up some good shelf mushrooms, and he had some sauces and recipes. And we cooked them up out in the woods. It was pretty cool. Um, That's cool. You know, That's fast crazy. forward, I left college, and and you know, I, I had a few things happen that I kind of left a little bit abruptly from school. Um, so I came and helped my dad out who was struggling with his uh, off-price business. And, you know, he had, we went out and did the show in Las Vegas and he had talked to the other jobbers. They all knew each other and said, hey, guys, you know, the big magic show is probably going to expand and take over the Hilton space next year. We really should organize and form an association. And all these guys are like, no, nah, I've been doing business with Joey here at the Hilton for 20 years. He's not going to throw us out. I got this. And, you know, again, big egos in that space. Um, so um when magic did take over the space and kick everybody out um the jobbers all came back and said hey bill we need george we need to form an association and and so we decided that we weren't going to form an association but started our own trade show for the off-price apparel industry hmm. and rented the top three floors of debbie reynolds hotel casino and movie museum hmm. uh, debbie performed nightly it's uh used to be the showboat uh at one point uh, vince mcmahon owned it as the wwf hotel in las vegas it's quite a storied property Oh, Vegas has got so many stories. Here's another and, one. Yeah, and, and like we had, we had, you know, other than participating in trade shows, we had no experience of actually running trade shows. You know, we hired a, you know, kind of a uh, maybe less than ethical kind of contractor who could kind of help us navigate through the space. And we did the first show. Um, we had to move everything up through like a four-person glass elevator. We had the top three floors of the hotel. I had to move all the bedroom furniture out so we could set the hotel rooms up as showrooms. Um, it was exhausting work, um, but I loved it. And, you know, just being able to bring everybody together there. Um, so, you know, we saw the opportunity and I, I really, you know, pushed on my dad to say, hey, let's let's focus on this. Um, you know, you're selling apparel. You're, you're kind of constantly maybe keeping your head above water. And so, you know, we did them twice a year and tied in with the big apparel show. So the first show, we had three floors. The next show, we had seven floors. The third show, we had 10 floors. The, all 10 floors of the hotel at the Debbie Reynolds, right down the street from the convention center. The hotel was always on the verge of bankruptcy. So we had to prepay everything. And we didn't know if we got out there, if there was going to be a, you know, the U.S. Marshal had put a padlock on the front door saying the property was closed. Um, we just kind of had to roll the dice. 
So this is you just taking big risks. You're like, what else are we going to do right now? Let's just, well, we're going to make it work. So yep. that first show went actually ended up doing pretty good then, obviously, if you did a second and a third. But like, yeah, just it just, you got lucky and it worked. Yep. Um, we got a little bit of a break. We were trying to find a convention space. Um, so we took over. We got a deal at the Sahara, which had like a 50,000 square foot convention space called the Space Center. And at that same time, um, Bill Bennett, who was the CEO of Circus Corporation, which eventually became, you know, uh, Mandalay Bay, um, was bidding personally on the same property that his company was bidding on, which now is the Mandalay Bay. And so all sorts of lawsuits fly. He sells out all his, you know, shares, $900 million and buys the Sahara. And he's a grind joint kind of guy in Vegas. So Circus Circus, he loves it, you know, get, you know. Joe Sixpack in there on Friday night to cash his paycheck, gamble and drink some beer and have a good time. And that's kind of his, his stick. And so he buys the Sahara and his first order of business is he tells his general counsel, get rid of all the trade show contracts we have. We're going to turn the space center into the world's largest buffet. And now we're like, Oh shit. Now what are we going to do? So we, we don't have convention space again. Um, we were able to work on a deal, and we actually... Did you laugh when you heard that, or was it just like, fine, okay, moving along, pivot? Yeah, just <laughs> what Vegas needs, a 50,000-square-foot <laughs> buffet, right? Um, so we um, we actually worked out a deal, and we were able... They had another client that they couldn't get rid of, so we kind of came to the table and said, hey, we want to put a tent structure up in your parking lot. We'll split the cost 50-50 so you can service your other client for the first year, and then just give us the rights to be able to put up a tent at our own expense in your parking lot. And they owned a parking lot that was across the street from Sahara on Paradise. Um, so we, um, you know, ended up uh, doing the first show, a couple shows in a tent structure across the street. Um, you know, and then one show there was like, you know, we had a lot of, uh, you know, Hasidic uh, Jewish people that participated in this event. And so we created a prayer area in the back. And so one of these like 16 foot wide aluminum beams falls from the ceiling and like, 10 feet away from these guys and it you know just scares the crap out of everybody uh, and i'm talking to the guy with that that we rent the tent from i'm like you know like what the hell's going on he goes well what do you expect you know some of these things happen i'm like well we spent three hundred thousand dollars for you to set up a tent i don't expect anybody to get killed so we ended up starting our own tent company that's a, um, so <laughs> I, um, like that's a fair expectation and then you say we started our own tent company <laughs> yeah so we started a tent company we had a couple of partners that did the hvac one of those guys with that ended up kind of getting resolved. We got moved out of the, you know, I'm paving parking lot in Las Vegas to extend our footprint on the tent because half of the lot was dirt. And then here goes and sells the property to Turnberry Estates, which was building high rise condominiums. So then I'm, I'm scrambling around. We end up going over the Stardust and they were tearing down all these motor lodges they had behind the building. So we get a deal to do a show for four years there. And then after the first show, uh, first, of all, first of all, after they tore them down, they didn't pave the parking lot. So it was literally like four foot waves of asphalt going through there. So we had to, so they, they go and they re-level so the, the whole parking lot. So they re-level the parking lot for us. They re-level the parking lot for us. And then after we do our first show there, the president of the hotel is like, well, we should put our own butler building back there, which is like kind of an aluminum sided building to expand our convention space. And by them doing that and the fire marshal regulations, I would have had to set my tent structure up into like seven tents. And so it was a huge nightmare. And I mean, so for they, a tent company, yeah. that's, in, you know, it's, it's pretty intense, you know, having and, all those, those tents And his around. attitude was like, well, it's not my fucking problem. And I said, well, my dad being an attorney as well, um, said, yes, it is. And so um, we had to get in a lawsuit with them to resolve that. 
and I moved the show over to the Rio. Um, at that time, we were able to sell the business in 1999. The last show I did at the Rio was 185,000 square foot tent with four megawatts of generated power, 2,800 tons of air conditioning. Um, the office, one of the office trailers caught on fire. Um, you know, we've had fist fights. I used to have, you know, armed security that would, you know, patrol the, the event at night. I mean, it was an interesting time of my life. And, you know, and I also, because we were setting up this tent, which took, you know, a three week build to build out, I was going out to Vegas for like a month, um, in my late twenties, which is not the healthiest thing for anybody. Not, not for you, not, not probably not for you, George. Not if you, not if you like to have a good time. I've only known you for about a half hour, but definitely not for you, George. <laughs> So fast forward, to stress some way, and I think you found your yeah. stress relief. <laughs> so, so we we sell the business, and um, uh, I have to. We have a two year earnout, which is typical for trade show assets. Um, so I'm running the business for another two years as they kind of transition. It was to a London based company. I thought, oh, maybe this would be an interesting career path for me. And I, I fairly quickly learned that I wasn't going to fit into kind of corporate culture very well. Um, and, uh, as the Buddha says, know thyself. Um, and so, um, I was going to, I got my MBA at Marquette. I was going to move out to New York. When I told you I was running that bar, I had to work the restaurant. I ended up meeting uh, a gentleman who became very, one of my best friends, Bart Ruggieri. Um, he lived out in New York. Um, was a great guy, great friend. I'm like, I'm going to move out to New York and just get a grunt job on wall street and figure it out. Right. This is kind of my, my stuff. Trade Center blows up. Um, everybody's exiting New York. Bart ends up dying. He was working for Cannon Fitzgerald. Um, so I moved to Las Vegas instead where I had, I just need to get out of Wisconsin. And I uh, moved to Las Vegas and I didn't know what I was going to do. I had a friend that was um, from Milwaukee that had lost his job, lost his wife. His best friend stole his money and the IRS was collecting taxes and moved out to Las Vegas and was in kind of a funk. Um, but he had run one of the biggest furniture stores in Milwaukee. And then he had another friend that was working for Hormel buying stuff out of China before China was even open. And somehow I get this idea that we should start a business importing patio furniture, selling direct to the public under a tent structure um, and run it along the entire <laughs> southern United States. Right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it's my Lebanese heritage that I just want to live in a tent um, and, and out in the desert. Right. Um, you find very interesting characters too. Um, nothing against you, Kim. Um, but like, you find very interesting characters to have these part of these journeys with. I really, I really, I, am I, I, I'm really this. good at. I, I, I'm a big fan of weird people. I'm a weird person myself. So, but get get um, get, the, get, to, um, get to the yeah. point faster, George, yeah. because we have to move on. How did you? <laughs> so how did you? Is, you know. How do we get? I want to hear about patio furniture, but I do really want to hear about tea and like and so, eventually how you met your 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 least crazy partner. Um, so I, I started this furniture business, took on some partners. Nobody did anything. Shut that down. I had met some guys from Australia and Canada to start a personal bottled oxygen company in Las Vegas as an interim amenity. Um, had the first activation party at the uh, beach nightclub at the Hard Rock back in the day. Um, the you know we did some interesting stuff. So this this friend of mine that was my part one of the good partner in the tent structure, his wife comes up and says, "George, is there a trade show for the tea industry?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And for some reason, it stuck in my head, and I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And I started looking at it, and I'm like, "There's all these tea companies that are exhibiting at coffee shows or fancy foods or at natural products expo. 
but there's not a show for themselves. Maybe this is an opportunity, kind of a blue ocean space to explore. And so I go back to the husband and wife and say, hey, would you guys like to start this business? I'll put up the money. You guys can be sweat equity partners and we'll launch this. And so Kim referenced the pig nudity name. The, the, the lady had said, I'm going to consult a numerologist and come up with this name. And it's, it's got a command in it, like take me and like number two from a numerology standpoint, all stuff like I, I, none of that shit mattered to me. I was more interested, like, does this have market potential, right? So we start Take Me to Tea, and as a result of, of running the business, the two of them realized that going to work together and going home together every day, that they really didn't like each other. So they get a divorce, um, and they're getting divorced, and one's telling me get rid of her, and the other's telling me get rid of him. And um, then, you know, after our first show, and I saw the potential of this, um, we sponsored an event out in Atlanta with Especially Coffee Association. And so I went out there and went to the show. So I'm walking in. There was in no premonition you were going to meet, you meet your beloved, right? No, but okay. there's a different side of the story. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't, I kind of get into the situations. But anyways, you got to tell the story fast. We, and then we get, to, we get to the, uh, the event. I'm walking in late. I hear him say, "Oh, we'd like to thank our sponsors." So I kind of sneak in the room real quick, and I sit down. And there's this girl there, and I cannot, for whatever reason, not keep my eyes off her. And so everybody gets up from that room. I kind of watch to see which room she's going into next. And I go and sit down next to her. And so it was a Shashank Goyles, I think, session, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So we sit down in the, in the session and I'm just kind of making some light talk. And we get done, I'm talking to her and I'm thinking, okay, great. I'm going to ask her for a number and see if she wants to go to the party with me that night. And I can pick her up. She doesn't really know that many people. And I can introduce her to some folks and everything else. And like a total schmuck, a bunch of people come over and like, oh, are you the guy that runs a, the T Expo? And I'm like, oh yeah, like immediately just snap into my sales hat, right? And I turn around and she's gone. And so I'm walking back to the hotel with uh, Faith, the business partner, and 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 walking along. And I see, you know, Faith, I this girl I met. I don't know what I needed to talk to her. I wanted to ask her out, and I totally blew it. And I'll probably never see her again. And we're walking back, and she goes, "Isn't that her sitting right there?" And so she was sitting on a fire hydrant because she got lost on her way back because she's navigationally challenged. And as we like to say politely, talking to Marcus, her friend. And that's your and, um, Yeah. And he's like, did you meet the, Did you meet him? And she's like, what are you talking about? And she said, I met somebody, but I, I probably will never see him again. So I stop. I go over. I say, Kim, can I get your phone number? Can I pick you up later that night? Pick her up. We go out to dinner. Um, I take a huge group of people over to this restaurant that, it's the most popular restaurant, so we don't we can't get a table for two hours. We're drinking mojitos, we're lit up like Christmas trees, and everybody's gone except for me, Kim, and the president of the tea association. So she gets up and goes to the bathroom, and I look over and I say, I'm gonna marry her. Oh, and he goes, Don't you think you better get to know her first? I go, Nope, I know, I know. Wow. So there you go. And you didn't you didn't like you didn't leak the news on this, Kim. You didn't like tell him this premonition of you. Oh, of course event, not. No. You? As a matter of fact, the one part that he sort of left out was when we were in that breakout session earlier, he had asked me already, do I want to go to the networking reception with him? And I said, yes, but I wasn't going to wait around for him to ask me for my number. Um, I'm the cool girl. Mm -hmm. No self-respecting woman should. So of course I'm not going to tell him that um, Marcus said Mm -hmm. I'm going to meet the man I was going to marry. No, I just left. Mm -hmm. But that's how we got, got together. And then, of course, my passion for tea. Here I was. I had just met the 
the king of the specialty tea world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he introduced me to everyone and it was um, amazing. And he needed help um, with Take Me to Tea. He needed help selling exhibit space. And I thought, well, what better way for me to learn everything there is to learn about the tea industry than to, to work with him? And then that's when we started mm-hmm. working together. Oh, so you, okay. So you were dating and working together from, from the get go yes. then. Wow. So your relationship norms kind of formed around a kind of a, a duality that you guys had of like, we're together here romantically, but then also here uh, work-wise as well. Yeah. So and it's, it's not, be- it's not, a, it's not easy. No. Um, I think Kim and I are able to have, you know, enough, um, we respect each other, you know, enough that like when we get to those moments where, you know, business partners, like, you know, butt heads. And, you know, I think that's what makes a great business partnership is that you have, you know, kind of two different schools of thought and skill sets that come together. And, you know, sometimes there's friction there. And I think we're always have been able to, for the most part, um, you know, compartmentalize that, that at the end of the day, it's like works there. This is our time. Um, and everything but Brian, else. you bring up a, bring up a good point yeah. that, mm-hmm. Since we've always sort of been together, dated, and worked together, our entire relationship evolved around doing both. So it's not like we were together and then we started working together, right? Yep. And, and th- that might work as well for some couples as well, or it might work not. But like you guys grew up together in, in that relationship. So I want to like this has been a <laughs> I will never look at an event space tent the exact same way now um, or, or tea for that matter as well. Um, I do want to get to your, you know, your building of, of MJ Unpacked and uh, in the relationship and like when you guys enter the cannabis industry and, and, and getting into that. So can we get a little quick synopsis? Is like when did George? I know you entered. You know you're working for Cannabis Media. Like when did when did that pivot into that? You know, out of the out of the T space, and then you guys are obviously working together the whole time. And if you want to, yeah. of course, interject. Yeah. So um, you know, after after we exited World T Expo, I was deciding what I wanted to do next. Um, a friend of a friend called me up, and he's like, "George, I heard you're going to be available. Let's start a pot show." I'm like, "What?" And kind of talked to him a little bit and he's like, this is going to be big. Colorado just legalized. This is going to go national. It's going to be huge. Um, and I wasn't really that interested. I mean, I wasn't, you know, also using, you know, marijuana very often in my life at that point in time. Um, and he said, no, George, we can be business partners, 50, 50, you can run it. And I go, great. Are you going to put up the money? He goes, I don't have any. So I kind of moved off. So of you can run it. You could put up the money. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, you know, he's a great guy. And so he was kind of, you know, very much of a gap fly. He talked to a lot of people. He had talked to the owners of MJ biz daily or MMJ business daily at the time, uh, who reached out and said that they were interested in hiring somebody as a publisher. I said, that's not what I do, but, um, you know, talked a little bit more and, you know, had an opportunity to kind of take all of these skills. And as Kim said, all these parallels for kind of that early stage market in the tea industry of figuring out what does tea retail look like? How do you make it successful? You know, what are these challenges and pitfalls for these really entrepreneurial people that might not have had the skill sets to maybe, you know, run an entire business? So, um, you know, it was just a, a good timing. Um, came in, they had done a, a table, you know, show with uh, 20 tabletops outside of Seattle. They had done a small show at a Masonic Lodge in Denver and was able to, you know, bring the show to Las Vegas and scale it up from those 20 tabletops to a thousand plus booth show at the Las Vegas Convention Center. 
was this your first experience in not just like organizing like a convention of, you know, buyers and sellers meet, let's talk, like educational programs and development and like those kind of things as a layer on top of. Um, yeah. I mean, we had a huge educational program at World Tea Expo and, you know, the off price industry, not so much. Um, but, you know, I mean, we had a, we had a boot camp. We had a World Tea Tasting Days at, at uh, World Tea Expo where we literally had an eight-hour day where people would taste different teas from around the world in sequential order to understand the flavor profiles that come from the terroir from, you know, different regions and the, and the styles of tea. Uh, people love that. And it's still, I still think it's going on to this day. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, so, so, and Chris Wallace, I mean, you know, phenomenal editor and, and journalist and everything else, you know, when you have somebody with that type of skill set, you know, to really build the event around where he can really drive the content and the conversation and I can handle all of the logistics and creating the experience. Um, it was a good recipe and we were able to, you know, again, have a great run. Um, unfortunately I, I, that did end in an executive divorce. I, you know, day one, I didn't want to take a job. I wanted to, you know, have an opportunity to create some equity wealth and there were promises made that weren't kept. And, um, we ended up having to resolve that, you know, legally, um, which, you know, somewhat I engineered my own exodus, which is another story for another time. Um, but, um, you know, listen, things happen for a reason. Um, it was a difficult period of time. I mean, you know, going through a lawsuit um, and, you know, concerned about my higher ability, my interest in staying in the cannabis space. Um, fortunately, an opportunity came along and uh, some investors at Dope Magazine wanted me to meet with them. They wanted somebody to come in with some media experience to kind of turn that business around. Dave Tran and company had built a phenomenal brand and really kind of offering a high times 2.0. But there wasn't really anything, you know, in the space that I think consumer media space has ever been successful. So mm -hmm. fast forward, um, after we exit, you know, I was able to get that business sold to high times, you know, it was again at a crossroads. And I think, you know, maybe Kim can kind of carry the conversation forward of, you know, our, our plans to launch MJ Unpacked and M MJ Brand Insight um, in the late 2019. Yeah, Kim, for this time, you were consulting on your own. You were at a, a Frost uh, Jage Consulting, um, doing like market market research, analysis, those kind of things. So you were not in the cannabis space as, as much as George was. I wasn't. So after we sold World Tea and went through our management contracts, we had two small kids, too, at home. And at one point, you know, when I had my first child, um, I brought him to the office, you know, back in World Tea, you know, Two weeks after he was born, I was working with him, trying to work with him in the office until we finally got some help. I helped. Um, but I wanted, <laughs> I was exhausted, I think, by the end of, by that exit. Um, and I wanted to be with my kids. But at the same time, I wanted one foot in the door in the business world. I didn't want to lose my, you know, I, I didn't want to lose the opportunity. And I was very afraid that if I left the market, I wouldn't be able to get back in. Your, your knife would get dull if you were not actively using it, if you will. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but, mm -hmm. um, and then I did get a little bored. <laughs> and at one point, I mean, I forgot, uh, at one point we launched, we were both hired to launch a uh, micro cap event in the cannabis space, um, which I was able to brand and market and we called it MJ Micro, um, and we launched that in what couple couple months. 
Yeah, basically, we had like uh, two and a half months from being able to get the funding to, uh, and it was for another company that it was for another company. But after we did that, and it was very successful, we did it in this city. We sort of looked at each other and said, "Why are we working for other people? You know, we know how to do this. Let's do this together." And of course, George had always, always saw the need for a brand retail event in the cannabis space. And after MJ Micro, and we were like, this is what we do. We know how to do this. And that's why we launched. Wow. Okay. So that was around, so that spark was around what, 2019 when you're like, hey, yes. this industry is getting bigger. It's growing beyond these mega events. Um, and, you know, that's not that long ago. Um, but like, it's not these giant warehouses upon warehouses, trade shows. It's like, there's something specific here that we could we could leverage here. So do you, do you guys remember like where you guys were at when that kind of like when that was starting to form and you guys were maybe sitting at a I don't see you guys sitting at a dinner table talking. Uh, I see you just <laughs> bouncing around, probably trying to fight a fire somewhere. <laughs> um, what did that initial vision look like? Was it, you know, basically what it is today of. Yep. So you guys what? Were, um, well, we were trying to figure out at the we were trying to figure out what it was going to look like and how it was going to be cost effective and how we were even going to convince cannabis brands that had never exhibited at a trade show before, most of them, the little guys at least, um, how would it make sense for them? And that's when we came up with the idea of the glass display cases and we searched high and low for the right one. You know, we didn't want one that was horizontal because we didn't want people looking down, you know, walking the floor. And um, I didn't want to call it an exhibit hall. So I called it the brand experience hall so that people could, I wanted to support this idea that you can discover and like you're almost in a retail store Mm -hmm. and that the brands themselves could display their products the way they want to see it in a retail store. Yeah, and it was um, also for an affordable amount. You know, like you weren't taking up a whole booth. It was just, you know. Exactly. And, well, then, and I think. You didn't have you to know, ship anything. Yep. And well, I think on top of that, you know, when we originally started kind of, you know, building this thing, the the, the, the same kind of gnawing question in my, my brain hadn't gone away of like, you know, eventually we get to having a natural products expo style show for the cannabis industry or bar nightclub show you know, or Budweiser and Seagram's and everybody's got big booths and you got smaller brands that are trying to break into the space hadn't gone away. And so, and, and they're, you know, back in 2019, you know, still didn't have a lot of assurance of federal legalization. The market's still very young. Um, and so our, our plans were is to kind of, you know, create kind of a, a pathway to that. And so our original business plans laid out were to run state market events um, not make them a kind of trade show boot, you know, pipe and drape type of experience so we can differentiate it and make it exclusively for executives in the industry. So it's not, you know, going to these shows where, you know, half the people are just looking around to see if they can get a job or they're trying to sell something from the aisles or they're an exhibitor and you really have a very low number of actually qualified attendees. So we said, you know, we don't want to have a 10,000, 20,000 person show. We want to have 200 of the most important people in the Colorado market to be at the show that are brands and retailers only bring in a, you know, really strong amount of data that can help them kind of unpack the industry, so to speak, um, and unpack, you know, what's going on in the space, obviously unpacking, you know, kind of ties into that brand experience and everything else. And, and as we were talking earlier, um, 
So we went out and um, actually a friend of mine in the industry, Patrick Ray, was running Canopy Boulder. He had used to work at Natural Fox Expo. He and I had been you know, talking for years about this. He's like, why don't I give you guys the seed capital for you? All right. And so we went into the Canopy Boulder cohort. Um, he gave me a hall pass so I didn't have to like move to Colorado and camp out there. Um, and, you know, we were able to basically kind of, you know, and, and learned a lot about, you know, pitching and raising from capital. Patrick's a great coach. Uh, but, you know, we were able to go out and raise our initial seed round in February after starting the cohort in January. Um, and we were only the second company in their seven year history that actually raised a round before the cohort ended. Um, work was the other one. Um, and um, so we got the money in and February and had venue rented and kits done and media marketing materials and staff hired in February to launch our this is February 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, to launch our event in May. And um it hit the fan in March. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. You were all queued up, ready to go, and then right into a brick wall. Um I mean, I know this is gonna be the arc for the rest of the show, is probably the pandemic. Um, as you are starting a uh an events space um in the pandemic, but what does that what does that brick wall look like? I mean, you've already booked the space, you know, that your events are already ready to go. Like this has already been reserved. You've probably sold some tickets already. Like, what does that look like for you guys? And what does that conversation look like when you're like, we have to postpone or cancel? As you're actually, you know, two human beings living through this event as well. Well, luckily we didn't we didn't sell any tickets and we didn't sell any uh, we never planned on having exhibit space at the time we were just looking to have summits conferences um bringing building the community state by state if you will so that eventually we could bring this to a national event um, and to a national level um so we're lucky in that regard that we didn't actually launch um george can talk to the logistics and operations of getting out of that contract, but, and he's good at that. Um, and because he's been doing this for so long, he can set terms and understand contracts better than anybody, better than most people in the space. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's scary as hell because we're not, you know, we're not in our early thirties anymore. Right. So if this doesn't work, then what? And it's it's both of our incomes. It's our kids' college, um, and it's it's very 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 scary. But at the same time, George and I are used to jumping off cliffs together. Um, I knew we were going to be fine. We had almost went bankrupt before when George mentioned two thousand and eight with World T. Um, we lived through that and successfully. We knew we would be okay. But we also knew we had to pivot, and he hates that word pivot, and yet he used it a lot during that time um, to virtual. And we didn't, we hated everything we saw. Uh, we did find one software company that was able to, I think we did our virtual events better than anybody else. And I'm not just saying that, I really do think the platform we used was unique. Um, you didn't have bobbing heads, you know, it wasn't anything like that. And it wasn't just a Zoom conference. It was as interactive as you can make it without feeling like you're in virtual reality. Um, but again, it was a virtual event and like they, they just don't work. 
And, and I think that was that was the biggest thing that we tried to figure out. I mean, you know, when the pandemic hit, you know, we we're in a really it, I'm not saying I'm a fan of the pandemic, but it was a fortunate situation for us in the context that we didn't lose 100 percent of our revenues from last year because we didn't have any. And we were able to, as Kim said, pivot. I, I just always say that people who say they pivoted meant that they screwed up and they just didn't want to own it. Uh, but in this case, we did have to pivot, as Kim mentioned. And, and so we really spent a lot of time. How do we create a personalized experience, a interactive personalized experience virtually to kind of come as close as possible to replicating the human interaction that's so quintessential of going to a live event? And, you know, people could take a iPhone picture of themselves and we could drop in their booth a picture of them standing in their booth and we could put their products on shelves and they had videos that they you could click it and play and they talk to you and 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 really tried to kind of you know really spent so much time on that interactive experience and just again as Kim said like it's just an awkward um, you know kind of human human interaction that people just did not want to adopt they were forced to and it just didn't have a we have the tech now, like we're at this really interesting age, and I think it's, you know, the pandemic is probably going to fast forward a lot of these things, but like we have communication and video, but that virtual experience that I know a lot of companies are working on right now, we're still five years before that's like an immersive experience that you could stick on a very easily affordable headset yep. and then be, and then have that immersive experience and that face-to-face interaction that yep. we're there. So. By the next pandemic, I think it'll be there, but um, <laughs> yeah, but great, not for great. this one. Th- thanks, Captain Optimist. Well, I mean, <laughs> history does repeat. It's probably going to happen. <laughs> well, and but but it's also I think we understood though that you know I mean where I saw like a lot of the tech shows like you know Amazon and Microsoft have these big shows. You know their their attendance at events you know mushroomed from twenty thousand to two hundred thousand because people all over the world that wouldn't maybe necessarily be able to travel there get permission from their bosses. They were working from home, so they didn't necessarily need to get that. We're able to attend a lot of those shows and they were there, you know, you're transferring a lot of data and information. And those those can be very successful virtually. But in a tactile industry like cannabis, where especially, you know, you need to be able to, you know, look the person you're going to do business in the in the eye and understand their body language. There's certainly some, you know, maybe less than, than ethical people in our industry. Um, mm-hmm. And you need to be able to, to to build that relationship and that foundational trust with somebody in person before you can do business. So, yeah. Brian, yeah. what this all means is that we did three of them. Um, we did three of them, and, and the first, they were mediocre reports. Please don't interrupt. <laughs> um, we did three of them. We were able to build a little bit of a database because remember, as entrepreneurs, you're just starting in the space. We had no database. Mm-hmm. Um, we relied on partnerships with. BDSA, for example, who is our partner in all of this, um, we relied on partners. We relied on our media associations to help us get the word out about who we were and also to generate leads. But after three of them, realized this is not working. Mm-hmm. Um, people are maybe registering to attend the virtual event, and then they're not showing up. They're not yeah. logging in. And so rather than continue to spend money on these virtual events, we decided, fuck this, we're not doing that anymore. We are going to focus on our first live event. And we are, had to furlough our staff. Um, mm. We had to take a break ourselves. Like we, And Wendy and Morgan, who are with us, who are an integral part of our team, um, they went on furlough and they never looked for another job. Wow. You know, they stuck they with us, us and they believed wow. in us. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that, that's loyalty right there. That shows the kind of people that you you guys are as leaders, and they believe in the mission. And they believe in the mission, and they stuck with us when we didn't know. I just knew that I didn't want to um, spend energy on virtual events anymore. I wanted to focus on how we can make our first in-person events successful. And, but they stayed. That's, um, that's and, amazing. And I, I've had the pleasure of working with Wendy briefly and she's just an amazing person, yeah. not Morgan yet, but uh, I'm glad you found some good team and I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're such an integral this, part of your team. This they, is, they definitely earned it. This is really kind of the, the, you know, we kind of, at the end of the third quarter of 2020, it was when we kind of like, hey, let's throw in the ball. Okay. And from a timing. Yeah. And, and, and as far as like, you know, kind of the, the genesis and really true kind of genesis of where we got to with MJ Impact and launching that in Las Vegas, um, there was somebody who was doing a, a, a call talking about the future of live events. I've been obviously paying very, very close attention and have a very big network, not just in the cannabis industry, but in the event space of kind of, you know, what the prognosis looked like. And everybody was talking, well, we're going to see live events come back. And at the end of quarter two in 2021, this is all going to blow over and everything else. And, and thinking through that and going, okay, first of all, nobody wants to be the first one to go back because that's going to be the toughest. So it's probably going to be quarter three before the events come back to being live events. And then couple that with that everybody in every event in every industry is going to try to dogpile their events into the second half of 2021 to be able to get it on the books. You know, they're coming off a year of zero revenues, um, you know, whether they're a big public company or a small company trying to survive. Um, and, you know, a lot of these, you know, companies, especially in the cannabis space, you know, held on to exhibitors, deposits and payments saying, well, we're going to, you know, do this event. So um, we had um, an opportunity to get some dates in Las Vegas in November of uh, 2021. And then I was on a conference call. It was Chris Walsh, myself, and I think I, I got Danny Diamond from Hall of Flowers on there. It was maybe... Um, Jim Gilbride, who's the group publisher for GIE Media that runs the Cannabis Conference. So the four of us were talking about this. And Chris talks about we're going to be earlier than we ever have been before. So I knew they'd move their dates up into October by looking it up. And I contacted the hotel. I said, what are the chances those dates are available for our fan? And, you know, saw the opportunity that what is kind of called a rump show uh, of going into a market the same way I did with Off Price Show on During Magic of saying, you know, we can bring our show there. And it's it's and it wasn't to go and steal attendees from MJ BizCon, but, you know, to address the fact that we had known and we had verified by talking to hundreds of people in the space that a majority of the decision makers were going to Las Vegas during MJ BizCon weren't even wasting time going to the show anymore because mm -hmm. it just had lost its value. It, lost, it's a, it became incredibly dilutive on its return on objectives. Anybody that, you know, trying to build a licensed operation in the space, anybody who's you know, nobody's coming to the market today saying, hey, what do I need to do to build out a grow from scratch? Um, because the money and the, the, the capital coming in, they already have all their SOPs. They have to have them by the time that they fill out their applications. They already know what they're going to use for their lighting, for their equipment, for their retail store and everything else. Um, but it became a placeholder on the calendar for a lot of people as, you know, the where the industry gathered. And you know, we saw an opportunity that that could be displaced and, um, you know, there could be a new must-attend event in Las Vegas that was focused on the true kind of vanguard of the industry, the brands and the retailers that are kind of converging in the middle to meet the consumer and either win, the, win them or lose them for our category. And that's really what's driving our market growth. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I liked how exclusive and it was very focused and exclusive. And like that was every, you know, I was in the, at the New York show, every conversation I had was a productive one. Um, and it was like, even if it was somebody who was like, 
I didn't have any like ancillary conversation with them or like, you know, some kind of like need behind it. It was like somebody, they, they were all experienced, everyone who I talked right. to. And like, that's probably like yeah. the, probably the better way of saying it. it wasn't like, well, you know, I've been thinking about getting in the industry, blah, blah, blah. And there's a place for those, those people. But like, you know, me going as, you know, for the lit up founders and also, you know, like, and I work at Flourish, like having those productive and knowledgeable and useful conversations was just refreshing because your time is so valuable. Why are you wasting it um, at, at, at other at other things yeah. that are just this huge amount Can I quote you on that? Yeah. That's wonderful to hear because that's exactly the intent. And, 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 you know, we spend a lot of time and it's like, you know, talk. And, and so really fundamentally, one is we listened, right? As we took the time because we had the time during the pandemic to talk to the people that we were trying to be of service to and how do we help you? Cause like it, that's ultimately our goal. If we can help you be more successful the same way we did at world T like we'll be able to build a great business around it, but it's, it's that comes after the fact that we can be of service and we can be of value. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, talking to people, it's like, Oh, I went to these shows and it's like, people are coming up and like, Hey, can I pick your brain for an hour? I'm thinking of getting the cannabis industry. Anybody that's been in the space for six or seven years, you're like, I don't know where to start. And if I spent I like, tried to explain all the knowledge I've gained. It's going to take like three days and I don't have time for you. And look at the things that people didn't like about the other shows. Like there's no place to sit down and have a conversation. What drives transactional success is people being able to sit down and have that conversation, right? It's not scanning your badge at a booth. You're booking in 2020 for 2021 for the Vegas show and then also for the New York show. You have to get funding to book these shows, you have to actually book these shows with said money. What on earth was that like to book out a hotel um, and event space in, in, in Vegas and in New York? Like, were they friendly toward you with this? Or was it like cutthroat of like, the world's going to open back up again, and we are ready to go? Like, Try to explain to somebody what that uh, looks like. Yeah. So um, I, I did mention that I operate well in chaos, right? Um, yeah. Finding a solution out. So um, the first thing we did is obviously we wanted to um, get our Vegas event, you know, locked and loaded. Um, you know, so we were able to move the event dates and launch this at the same time as MJ Biz, um, you know, for that first year. And, um, you know, so once we got that that event kind of buttoned up and everything else, we needed to raise some more money because the money we had raised to launch the events in the first place, you know, we more or less consumed doing these virtual events and kind of, you know, keeping the company and the doors open. So we needed to go out and raise more money. Um, and, you know, with the story that, hey, you know, the money that we had to do this, we kind of blew it and now we need it again, right? So, um, you know, I've, uh, for Better or worse, I have become very astute at raising capital in the uh, space and spinning the plates and getting investors come on board. A lot of our investors that invest in the first round re-upped. Um, so we were able to do a kind of a secondary seed round um, at the end of 2021 or 2020 um, to recapitalize the company, give us kind of that full tank of gas to go into the market. Um, and, you know, I, I went down to Vegas to do a site visit. None of the locks on the convention rooms um, worked because the batteries had all died because um, they had been closed for so long. And I had to wait until like July before our, you know, October event to even get down there. I, Kim and I did events at the Mandalay Bay before, so we were very familiar with the space. Uh, but there's always kind of you want to visualize the space and then kind of imagine where things are going to go and how things are going to flow and really kind of, you know, understand the, the kind of 
details of this. And at the same time, we're like, okay, well, you know, our plans are let's do this nationally was our, our ultimate goal with what we started with our business plan to start local, you know, in a state market, move to regional, and then eventually build this into a bi-coastal, bi-annual show. So we're like, we need to get, we need to get dates in New York. New York will be clearly be, have the recreational market open by then um, at that time we thought. Um, And um, so we went out to New York. We didn't want to do a show at the Javits Center. Um, It's just kind of very boxy and kind of industrial. And the Hilton was really kind of the best option out there. And again, their hotel was completely shut down um, during the pandemic. And and so, you know, their sales team was working from home, was able to get some dates and lock in the things. And, you know, the, the speculation on that to book a, a hotel, you know, 18 months in advance that's closed down with no certain date of reopening and uh, making financial commitments to them was, you know, a little nerve wracking. But, you know, it's also you got you got to sink or swim, right? And I'm sure you're a shrewd contract negotiator, and there's <laughs> clauses for if things got to get pushed or whatever right. else. Well, there's certain things you can and can't do, but yeah, I mean, there was at that time the hotels were certainly putting in, you know, COVID clauses that you know you could exit the contract if there was, you know, a pandemic that would prevent us from holding the event. And you know, I think the General Trade Show Committee did that. I mean, even going back to MJ Biz, like when I when I took over, they had a contract at the Rio, and I had to, like literally they. they staff told me that they'd never had to rewrite a contract so many times because they just didn't know how to ask for the right things and how to set up the contract to negotiate to, you know, and they only had a contract for one show. So I was able to build out, you know, kind of a three-year cycle for them, um, you know, back in the day and ultimately a five-year cycle for them before I left. But, you know, same thing with our show, you know, we, we're, we're going to be back in New York next April, at the end of April. Um, we've just locked up uh, Las Vegas dates for the next four years. Um, including this fall one. And, you know, New York's an interesting market. Um, I, I think it, you know, the epicenter of, of certainly capital and certainly brands um, that make it globally um, that offer a lot of very attractive things, but man, it's expensive there. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of influence um, uh, here in New York. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice touchstone that you guys are going to have that, 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 that Vegas, uh, West coast and East coast preference, uh, in those cities. If you can make it um, there. Yeah. <laughs> anywhere. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, briefly touching on this, I know you guys have your, your fall date in September. I think you're not in, you're not in line with, uh, with MJ biz, mm-hmm. um, for, for, for this fall. And then you sit back in, uh, in New York again in April. Um, from your freshman year and sophomore conferences, you know, in, in doing these, what is the, what is your junior year? What is your third conference going to be like? What are like what are some of the things that we're pivoting, if you like that word or not, George, yes. or improving upon or like evolving? Because I loved a lot of the things that you guys had, and you've really got a lot of things right. What are some of the the room for improvement that you guys uh, see where things are growing with you guys? I, I want to throw a clarification in there. It was really our first and second semester of our freshman year. Um, you know, because, you know, doing a show in New York is in our second show, it's building a show in a new market. So, um, you know, I think that that was probably the, the one thing, but, you know, I think from, from show one to show two, I can talk about a little bit and Kim maybe can share a little bit about our plans for our third edition, which will be in Las Vegas. But, you know, we didn't have a captive market when we did our show in Las Vegas. It was kind of the double-edged sword of doing it during MJ BizCon gave us a lot of brand awareness. There was a lot of buzz around this. Like you hear about this other show and man, everybody over Events. there is qualified. What's that? Events. 
event, event, event sorry sorry marketing marketing censure um so the you know um that was the biggest thing and and you know we had kind of had to guess on how many people we were going to have and how full the show floor was going to be and we really kind of compacted everything was going on at once the main stage the money stage the brand experience hall the lounge we had musicians we had foosball tables we had our vc central with a number of vcs that had suites in the part of the show instead of being across town in a hotel room and that so we kind nice. of I got to go up yeah. to the, the Poseidon booths. And yeah. And, and so we learned, yeah. learned a lot of lessons. I mean, the most most significant is I knew going into New York that um, you know, we'd have a captive audience. So even if we had the same amount of people in New York, New York that we had in Las Vegas, it would feel four or five times busier. And it did. Um, and I think that was you know probably most notable. And then we just tried to create some separation between when we were having our general sessions, when pitches were going on on the money stage, so that they weren't competing for audience. Um, and, um, you know, really just continuing to improve the qualification process. Um, you know, New York, um, Kim, I saw your late night, your late night LinkedIn post, and I remember screenshotting it and I cannot find it right now, but you're like enough, like there's no comp tickets. I'm not getting your brother-in-law in. I forgot what the exact quote was. I remember seeing it and like really just laughing and I'm like, it was late. It was easily past midnight and you were just like, stop with the freaking shenanigans people (laughs) (laughs) and i loved it i really i was like i think i might have smoked a little too much and i just decided to be (laughs) frank and honest um but i was i was very grateful of how much support i got instead of haters yeah yeah it's 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 extraordinarily tough what you guys do and like i the fact that it is so walled off and curated um you can't get everything but like it was was just such an all the conversations i had were 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 knowledgeable and meaningful and like that was a big that was a big i think that's a big differentiator for part of it and and i'm not trying to be exclusionary right we're trying to just create something for a particular market that's it and there could be a startup intro to cannabis show and there's going to be a different presenters there and that's probably more effective for them to be able to go to uh as well so the challenge is is that all of the ancillary you know companies that are exhibiting at these other you know kind of supply side shows they're paying to exhibit there with the anticipation of meeting with the brands and retailers Mm -hmm. um that we know are not really attending in mass at these events um so once we kind of you know put up that red velvet rope so to speak um and only allowed you know a certain you know sub-segment of the, of, of the industry into our event it became very you know like oh i need to be there so how can i lie pete and fake this and how, who can i call and ask for a pass for and um you know and that's that's problematic i mean we're it just it, pass. yeah we, we want to make sure that we're we're staying pure to the vision and again like we want to support this very specific subsegment, these brands and retailers that are fighting tooth and nail out there. They need help. They need access to capital. They need to learn from peers, not from some consultant talking from stage about how they should do this better, or you know, some sponsor that paid to speak on stage telling out why their POS system is so great. They need peer-to-peer learning. That's the highest form of learning. And when you're in the room with people that do your job, Kim, who said that to you? You're like um, Rabbi Khan. Yeah, I said, I'm, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like, all the people in the room, they do the same thing I do, right? Like, they, they have the same challenges. They have the same pain points. They've, they've got successes that they can share with each other that will help them be better at, at doing what they're doing, which, again, is the vanguard of what's growing our industry. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, end cap on 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 the business of, of what MJ and Unpacked is doing and where you guys are growing to and, and why 
you guys are doing it. And it's, um, it's just, it's just great to see like these mission driven, impactful focus shows develop within this industry. Um, so people who are experienced can learn from other ones. So thank you for doing what you guys do. Um, I have very quick takeaway questions. I know we're a little bit over time, but like, um, how do you guys keep your sanity and focus, especially as a married couple who is in business together? Like, what is your, what is, what is your Zen moment? I'm sure Kim, something tells me it's Reiki or gay or, 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 um, or, or yoga. Uh, just a guess. <laughs> Hit it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and George, I have no idea, but uh, probably just putting out more fires. <laughs> Bourbon and marijuana. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's true, too. Uh, that, marijuana and, and wine for me, too. I yeah. love it. I love it. Well, that's, that's a very appropriate one, then. But um, it's, it, it's, it's what, what wakes us up in the morning, and it doesn't happen every day, but we hear about somebody that, you know, one of, one of the people that pitched from our stage in Las Vegas got a million dollars in funding. Um, and, you know, when we hear about, you know, Moxie Mints, you know, re-engage with Acreage to set up a deal at our show in Las Vegas that now has them in 10 more states as one of the top mint companies in the country. And actually the owner and the founder of that lives on the, our island, right? I don't know him. I didn't know him until we were doing the show. But when we hear that those opportunities are out there or just, you know, people saying that, like you've said, I met with people that I, I really had a lot of value in having a conversation with like that can be impactful yeah, really impactful in people's business career business careers it definitely is my my next question is what is your north star i have a hunch i know what the answer to that is as well uh, my children george that's my north star that's why i do what i do yeah same it's my family my wife my children comes back to that makes uh makes you understand who's on your side and, and this right here which you can't see because this is an audio recording but I'm painting a sailboat um my 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 ultimate goal is to just have a boat a sailboat that i can jump on with kim anytime and go sailing somewhere and not worry about having to come back <laughs> I, I resonate with uh, with love of sailing uh, as well. So um, yeah, so that's uh, that's 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 a nice ultimate freedom there. I didn't catch that in our intro one, but uh, that's that's a nice dream right, to have right there. I hope you guys get that. Um, what cannabis inf uh, founders inspire you? You mentioned a lot of names throughout our interview today, but are there founders or or even non cannabis founders that really you like um, to 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 mimic or follow or inspire you in some ways whatsoever. Kim? Well, wow. you know a lot more cannabis founders than I do. I'm new to could the Could be non-cannabis, could be, could yeah. be Oprah. Uh, my first response to that is P.T. Barnum. Um, you know, uh, it, and it's not about creating a circus, but, That's you know, bringing, again. It, it's, it's about bringing joy to people's lives um, and bringing them together under the same tent. Um, that, that, I think, is quintessentially what we do. Um, you know, in, in a meaningful and commercially valuable way. Um, it's not so much about eating the popcorn, but getting deals done. And, um, you know, if you kind of look at, you know, people's kind of like understanding like Maslow's needs hierarchy of the things that you need to do to fully actualize as an adult, like, I mean, I think that those exist in our business careers too. Like, you know, so it's having a sense of belonging that you're in the room with, with people who share your values, who share your passions, 
Um, and when you put those people together and you're able to bring them together, like when we do the show, it's like him and I are running around like chickens with our heads cut off, like taking care of everything to make sure that all the accidents that happen in the back of the house don't spill out to the front of the house. Um, so we don't necessarily always get to enjoy the show or listen to the sessions, um, but we get to watch the reactions of people as they're coming in and out and the joy and their success stories and stuff like that. I like that. That's, uh, yeah, it, it's, you've echoed that throughout this entire interview. So definitely see that. Um, Kim, anybody? And you could pass. Um, no, I want, you know, there's, I'm st still learning and developing relationships with founders, but I do look up to Megan Klein, who is the founder of Little Saints, um, as a female entrepreneur. She's got a lot of guts. She also understands plant medicine. Um, she comes from the CPG industry, the natural products industry. She uh, understands how cannabis is going to be a CPG natural product. Um, she's wickedly smart. She's also an attorney. She's got guts. She just moved to New York to launch, continue to launch Little Saints in New York. Um, I look up to her a lot. Bold moves, bold moves. Bold moves, and, and absolutely. Very good, and very good company as well, as, as long as you guys. Um, you know, I think Kim, Kim, real quick, I, I mean, like, I, and you might not have thought about this off the top of your head, but I think Kim gets very inspired by our advisory board. You know, people like oh, Tucky Kwan, um, Ryan Brown. Oh, Tucky. Oh, yes. I love Tucky. I mean, he's um, an inspirational guy. 100%. You know, Tucky Blunt Jr. is the Alfonso. Um he is the first social equity applicant first to retain felon. a license in Oakland, California. Felon. He's the first felon. He's the first. Oh, is he the first? Well, okay. Yep. Um, he has had his dispensary three years now, I think, for three years. Um, oh, he's not making a lot of money, right? I mean, between California's a tough market. California taxes. I mean, he's been robbed, I think, several times. Insurance won't pay for anything. I mean, this guy is working his ass off. Um, he's such a warm and loving soul, and he's working really hard to make sure that cannabis isn't more equitable industry. And when I say that, I don't just mean socially. I also mean economically, like with the taxes and the legislation and the regulation. Um, Shayun now comes to mind. Shayun started his dispensary. Um, uh, Elevator. At where he where he where he first opened, but oh, he did it with fifty thousand dollars, and he was living in in his dispensary. Elevate. Um, living in his dispensary for a year until he could launch his business. So I guess you're right. There's a lot more when I when I when you start when I start to think about them. It just couldn't come off the top of my head. But I've met so many passionate people in the industry um, that are resilient and that Fighters. are brave. Um, and these sound, are, these sound like future uh, lit up founders guests. I think I should have. Uh, Oh, you guys 100%. for an intro to have some of these people on the show I'll to, send to you tell an email. their story. So. <laughs> I'll send you an email, Brian. Yeah, uh, that's good. I appreciate you sh teasing that story for a future episode of Lit Up Founders. Stay tuned. Um, 
this is amazing. This is why I do the show sharing like these, you know, starting tent companies to compensate for trade shows and how all this evolves. And, you know, the fact that you're going to, you know, you guys were destined to meet <laughs> out of fire hydrant, like, and, and just the mission driven behind what you guys do, I think is just amazing. And it just another example of the wealth of talent and passion that, that comes into the cannabis industry. Um, I'm assuming the guests, if they're listening, they've already found out how to get a hold of you guys, but like, what is the best way to connect with, with you guys? You guys prefer LinkedIn, you prefer the website, um, what is your preferred methods for, for staying in touch with what's going on with, uh, with MJ Unpacked? Um, meet, I, meet us at the event. <laughs> I, I, I love a good old fashioned phone call. Okay. Right? Call yeah. me up. I'd love to talk. There, uh, her, 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 every, every form of communication is in your signature, Kim. So, uh, I had no <laughs> doubt of getting a hold of you today. Um, so yeah, find them online, uh, mjimpact.com. Um, and then they're also on the, the Twitters and the Instagrams of the world. Um, but yeah, go out to the event. Don't miss it. You'll see them this September. Uh, what are the dates in for Vegas? September 20th. Yeah, 28th to 30th. We've got some really new, exciting stuff that we'll reveal at the show. Um, we do have some, you know, again, going back to evolution, we'll be a full three-day show with a full day dedicated to conference programs and then two days kind of discovery at the event. Um, I'm sorry, three-day event, Kim, uh, not mm -hmm. a show. Um, uh, we'll really, you know, we're really kind of, you know, tightening things up to make sure that we're maintaining the purity of who's in the room. And um, it's going to be at the MGM and it's going to be amazing. 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 Don't miss it. Guys, thank you for thank sparing you. so much of your time and, and, and for the uh, for, for being just amazing founders to be on uh, on the show today and, and just sharing a passion. And I'm just looking forward to attending future shows and, and seeing where so where you guys grow this. So, so thank you for doing what you do. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having us. Hey there. One quick thing before we go. If you've listened this far, you've likely got some value from the show. These episodes take a lot to produce, and all I'm asking for is some feedback. I hear this all the time, and honestly, usually ignore it too, but reviews have a huge ROI for us podcasters, especially the smaller ones. Taking less than a minute to write a review and sharing with your friends, colleagues, and followers on social media would mean the world to us. Thank you. Lit Up Founders is a Lit Up Media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was edited by Anthony Margola and Brian Weber, mixed and mastered by Anthony Margola, theme music courtesy of Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and LinkedIn at litupmedia. Our email is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for sharing the journey.